Welcome to Cinema Chop Shop. I know everyone was expecting a bit of a hiatus from us as we did a little uh, retooling and tinkering under the hood, as it were. But uh, we kind of had an opportunity that presented itself to us uh, on the show in the form of a documentary that uh, both Chelsea and I watched and really enjoyed. Chelsea, what was that documentary? It's called Vinyl Nation. Vinyl Nation. Just for the listeners who have not had a chance to see this, we'll go into a lot more detail about it, but it is a documentary that discusses the uh, resurgence and popularity of vinyl uh, records and vinyl collecting. Through our reviews and tweets and whatnot about the, the documentary, one of the directors of the film reached out to us and suggested that we get together and do an episode about record store movies. We're very thrilled and honored to be joined today by uh, Kevin Smokler, one of the directors of the documentary. Kevin, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Appreciate you having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kevin, tell the listeners about you and the documentary, what you're all about, how you got to this point. What's the scoop? Uh, Sure. Vinyl Nation is a 92-minute feature-length documentary, uh, which was filmed in 2019 and released uh, on April 19th of this year. Uh, You can do the math and figure out there was two years' worth of pandemic between those two things happening. Um, And uh, and the uh, premise of Vinyl Nation is about the now uh, 15-year renaissance of vinyl records in America and the people who made it happen. And we talk to people who love vinyl. We talk to uh, people who are skeptical about vinyl. We talk to record stores and record pressing plants and musicians. And the idea was to sort of view the record as uh, not only a way of communing with music, but a way we use to commune with each other. Uh, We hope that's what people get out of seeing the movie anyway. I think that came across loud and clear. And I do want to mention before I forget, one of the things that impressed me most about the documentary was how you took on the facets of record collecting, record enthusiasm, but also the business side of it, the production, the manufacturing side of it, which I found really interesting. And it's something I had not really seen before uh, up close to that degree. So kudos to you guys for for, uh, giving us that kind of insight. Thank you. That that was mostly my co-director, Chris Boone's idea. Um, He, he, we, when we first started talking about doing the movie together, uh, we had a very honest and firm conversation that this subject needed to be a movie and not a 10-episode podcast or a book or a magazine article or something like that. And the thing that cinched it for us is that records are physical objects that exist in physical space, and that's what makes them different from the way we typically consume music now. So if that were the case, we needed to see them becoming we needed to see records becoming records and and that 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 was really the kind of thing you could only capture visually so we we had the opportunity in this movie to visit four different record pressing plants uh i was convinced that not all four of them would end up in the movie um for fear of seeming repetitive but they all four did for different reasons and uh like you guys said it seems to be the part of the movie that speaks to people the most well, I think vinyl collection is such a tactile thing. You you become so intimate with physical touch with them that it's rare people sort of touch on that. Yeah, I mean, we don't 
we don't uh i wish we had talked about it a bit more in the movie and we only discovered this in retrospect you know vinyl takes up physical space in one's home or in one's office or whatever wherever you decide to keep your records um so its presence is unmistakable you can't you can't close your eyes and pretend it's not physically there with you it is uh and it's more than just furniture because it contains not only music but it contains your memories and and the the connections you have with others and it contains a sort of a sort of alternate autobiography of you you know uh, i mean maybe not if you started collecting records 5 minutes ago um but chances are the first thing anybody who gets into records as an adult as opposed to growing up with them and that certainly was the case for chris and i we were both too young to be into records when records were the only way that we listened to music so we're both you know products of the vinyl renaissance uh and i think what everybody what most people experience when they get into records as a grown-up is you start with the records or the albums that were important to you at important times in life um and then you rebuy those if you ever own them on vinyl in the first place you buy them for the first time and so your records in addition to being a tactile presence as you've as you've pointed out are are your story and it's sitting there in multi volumes just like an encyclopedia you know in, in your home uh so yeah we really felt like the only way to capture that tactileness was visually in a movie i think you guys nailed it but how cool was the Nashville United Record Pressing Building? I was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was amazing. Like I, I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you you asked bo- asked both versions of that question because we got to see the current Nashville United Record Pressing Building, which is the size of a football field uh, and just stretches off into infinity. When you look at it, I believe the building itself contains 45 or more something around there pressing machines, and pressing machines are not small. Um, and then we also got to see the original Nashville record, uh, Uni- I'm sorry, United Record Pressing Building, um, which is sort of still owned by the company and is in East Nashville, and was the place that records were had, had been pressed really since the very early days of a recorded music industry in, in America. And so that was the place that Motown pressed all its records and many of the major labels did. Uh, and the building still stands, so so you could see the, the the suite where you know the Commodores or James or James Brown or the Supremes or any of these legends of American music would sit as their album was dropped onto the turntable for the very first time, and, and they heard it and 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 you know convened with their friends and 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 family around the turntable and listened to it. Uh, it was amazing to see both, um, and and. The purpose of showing both was was that the large, the, the the ginormous current Nashville or United Record Pressing plant is a product of the comeback of records. Um, it's like three times the size of the original plant, and that's because not because the record industry is three times bigger than it used to be, uh, but because United Record Pressing as a company when it was purchased was a company on the way out the door, and the comeback of vinyl reversed its fortunes entirely. I did love what the movie did there where it sort of played with you because I was like, oh, no, this beautiful building is going to be lost. Records are dead. <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> and then you're like, psych. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what we were after. Um, we we do run into people, not you guys, but we run into people when we talk about Vinyl Nation and what it's about who don't know records have 
returned. Uh, it's 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 a diminishing number. Like like most people, fifteen years in get it. Certainly, anybody like with a teenager or a college student under their roof gets it. But yeah, every now and then we we say we made a movie about records, and people expect it to be this this sort of funereal, morose procession of you know shuttered record stores and pressing plants meeting the wrecking ball and things like that. And 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 we, we certainly do talk a little bit about the fallow period in the history of, of vinyl, the sort of in-between between its first era and its renaissance. But there isn't really much to say about that <laughs> other, than, <laughs> it, other than that it happened and, and, and there were sort of distinct groups of people keeping records alive during the in-between times, you know, DJs and, and radio people and, um, and certain musical subcultures like punk and dance music and hip hop that sort of composed, not only composed with the record as part of their uh, instrument arsenal, but also viewed the record and its low cost way of producing music as part of the ethos of making music. That's particularly the case in, with punk. You know, records survived in punk communities because they were cheap ways of making music. Um, so yeah, I, the 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 death of was was something we, we we weren't particularly interested in when we made the movie, and we sort of we sort of got through it as quickly as we can in our in our history of the movie. Um, so uh, anyone who has not seen it yet, uh, it is it is not a dirge; it is a celebration. Our movie. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is a great opportunity to tell the audience where can they see, how can they see this documentary? Yes, Vinyl Nation was released uh, on April 19th, just in time for Record Store Day, uh, by 1091 Pictures. That is the uh, that is the studio that was responsible for the great Linda Ronstadt documentary that was, um, uh, that was on Netflix last year called The Sound of My Voice, and also the documentary about the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, the, uh, the, the, the cradle of many a great songwriter, including um, a, a little-known, uh, deeply underground musician named Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, we are we are th- honored to be part of of the lineup of great music documentaries put out by 1091 Pictures. Um, our release is a digital one, um, and so you can find all the platforms that Vinyl Nation is available on at our website, vinylnationfilm.com. Perfect, perfect. And I, you know, Chelsea and I both highly recommend it to our audience and our friends, and we've been talking about it nonstop. So, yes, <laughs> give it a watch; it's worth it. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, the funeral dirge, the 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 anticipatory uh, dark days of vinyl. Um, you knew that was out there, but and, and you and very smartly avoided that. I, but I'm curious, what knowing that was, you know tread ground already what was the most surprising or unexpected thing that you discovered during the making of the documentary hmm um there are many um and and chris and i typically have different answers to this question uh i think the big one for me was uh we interviewed 45 ordinary people for this movie and strangely enough in the editing they they all ended up having at least a small piece of this movie we didn't think we'd we'd include we'd end up including everybody but we did um and that was a surprise and when you talk to ordinary people 
who are not in the business of sort of speaking professionally on camera and having a rap that they put forth. Um, a, a person who speaks professionally on camera, you know, knows to say a different thing every time so they don't look uh, uh, dull or uninteresting. And they also know to, you know, to sort of vary things up so so people don't get sick of them appearing on camera. That is not the case with ordinary people. And so because we filmed almost everybody either in their home or their workplace, a, a physical space that they had made their own, um, I think we assumed that when we started talking to people about their favorite records, it would be pretty obvious what their favorite records would be just based on who the person was, you know, their age or their race or their gender or what they did for a living or when they came into records. We all kind of assumed we would be able to guess everybody's favorite records or pretty close to it. And we were always wrong. <laughs> all of us, everybody was, everybody was more interesting in terms of what they listened to than we predicted they would be. Um, and I think by the time we had finished the movie, we took what we took from that, or at least what I took from that was that records, although some, although it is very common to use records as kind of a way to revisit old friends you know, these, this is the kind of music I got into when I was 15, and this is the kind of music that has always spoken to me, and now I'm going to revisit those old friends by buying those kinds of records. Uh, that's a very common way to listen to music. As common is what we refer to as sort of the seeker's way to listen to music, which is records increasingly open doors and darkened hallways to different kinds of music, to different eras and genres and, you know, record labels and, and, and producers and engineers. And because all of the data about how that music was made was right, is right in front of you. Um, and because records are part of our homes, they privilege a kind of deep listening where you have to interact with them and be present with them. And so naturally what happens is people end up sort of, uh, they've got their home planet when it comes to music and then they use records to kind of fly amongst the stars too. And, and it's, it, it, I, I'm not saying you can't do that with streaming. You certainly can. I just think the, the pathways to, to worlds unknown are less clear when you do that with streaming and you actually have to be looking for them. I think it's much easier to be a seeker um, just by being curious with records. And so we, 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 we really didn't think that, that, that we, would, we would find to the one, all 45 people we talked to so interesting musically and, and we really did. Um, I have a question about that kid, Elliot. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's super cool. And I would like to know, is he available for adoption? Because I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is not. Uh, Elliot, <laughs> Elliot is the, the elder son of, 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 of someone I grew up with um, and is very happy with his own family. Um, <laughs> but, so but cool. He is. He, he's, he's super cool and he's a natural. We... He was a last-minute addition to our first week of shooting in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, and we didn't know how how he would play on camera because we had never met him before. And uh, when his mother uh, and I started speaking about Elliot being in the movie, 
um, he, uh, I, Elliot and I talked on FaceTime, um, and I just, I just said, show me your records. And, and it was very clear just based on that, how great he was going to be on camera. Um, and so that, that day, that particular shoot day was very, was very special because, um, we really didn't think we would capture what made Elliot special if we sort of sat him down and spent the requisite 45 minutes setting up cameras and lights and making sure we had a perfectly composed shot of him talking to us. Um, so that was all shot handheld uh, on the shoulder, kind of on the fly. Uh, and I, and I would ask very loose open-ended questions and he would, and he would just go. Um, he was, he was a highlight for me. Um, just obviously a super intelligent kid and an old soul because he was speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I was initially worried about including Elliot because I, and not including Elliot, but including so, some of the things that Elliot said, because I was, I more than Chris was very committed to our movie being a movie about the present. Um, because this is that this is not a nostalgia piece. This is a this is a this is a a story about what is happening right now with the way we relate to music, um, and so I, I wasn't I wasn't super psyched to have an eleven year old kid talking about how all the great music was made forty and fifty years ago, um, and yet when put together as parts of a whole what you get from the stuff with Elliot is more his spirit rather than, you know, any rather than specifically this phrase or that phrase or this opinion or that opinion. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that, that was a, a mistaken judgment on my part. Well, I found his, his enthusiasm was just refreshing. Yeah. Agreed. So I guess one question for you would be, what is your personal connection to vinyl? Uh, I am someone who was born a bit too late to be into records the first time around. And my parents had a ton of records, but but I, I'm more part of the Sony Walkman birth of MTV generation um, and the sort of mass retailing of music. So I, I was... Uh, to me, records were a definitively old way of listening to music when when I began acquiring, you know, albums myself. Um, and then it would be it would I would be a grown ass man when I, you know, in my thirties when when a, a guy I knew sort of sold me his turntable because he was moving and trying to get rid of it, and I. I bought his turntable and a, and he took me to a used stereo shop so I could complete the system. And then it just sat on my living room floor. I really didn't know what to do with it. And, and I convinced him to take me record shopping at the original Amoeba records in Berkeley. Um, and, and that was sort of the beginning of the journey with me. And, and I think if I had, if I had gone record shopping with him and just rebought my 10 favorite albums, I don't know how far, that journey would have gone. I don't think I would have ended up making a documentary about it. Uh, but instead I was, I was so in the dark as to what I was supposed to do with a record player in 2007 that I, I just said to him, listen, just find me 10 records that don't cost a mint. And, um, and you, is something you like, and you try and like, you know, convince other people to like something you try and hand sell to people. I said, okay. And, and his thing was 1970s Philadelphia soul music, which was a genre I was completely unfamiliar with. Um, 
And then I took those records home and I listened to them and I realized how many uh, uh, undiscovered countries there were in, in music listening. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of it all for me. One of the things that impressed me a lot about the documentary, and I don't know if it was coincidental or if it was deliberate, was the diversity of the collectors that you interviewed, male, female, white, African-American, et cetera. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Uh, was that a, a choice that you sought out those types uh, of, of you know, a wide ranging audience or did it just happen to be how it shaped out for you? No, it was a very deliberate choice. Um, at the beginning, all Chris and I had was a title and an idea. Uh, records have been coming back for 10 years. We have a title called Vinyl Nation. You know, if we were to make a documentary about that subject, what would it include? Like that was, that was it. Um, but pretty quickly, we came around to this idea that if you're going to have a title if you're going to have nation in the, in the title, it needs to be reflective of that word. Uh, and two, if the comeback of records could largely be explained by people who were into them the first time around, uh, getting back into them, uh, there was kind of no story there. Like, like there was not, that's a, that's a, that, that can be a story about any, any old P any old hobby that could, that could just as easily be a movie about model trains or stamp collecting. Um, so it was pretty clear to us from the beginning that the story, or at least the story we started with, was, was who else had gotten into records, um, you know, since they had been the dominant way of listening to music. And so we said, it's very clear that A, we, we said no celebrities, only ordinary people. Um, we just, A, we, we, we couldn't think, we didn't see how we could keep a story imbalanced if there was balanced if there's one or two famous people and everybody else wasn't and b as a small independent film you know you can't there was no way we could change our shooting schedule based on the vagaries of when a celebrity would be available and wouldn't so um so we needed to we needed we need to we we said at the beginning no famous people and at the beginning we also said like okay like as as many different interesting kinds of people as we can because that will truly show that record people are everyone. And that is kind of what we saw contained in this idea of a record renaissance. Um, the only way for the math to work was for records to be, for records to become thoroughly mainstream and not some sort of weird freakish pursuit that weird freakish people were, <laughs> did. Um, and that's, that's in fact true. Like we didn't know it was true when we started, but that, that is in fact what has happened and um and you know the and we we feel pretty comfortable saying that like the one of the one of the many great things we learned in our movie that record people are truly everybody uh follow-up question to that were you surprised by the number of women working at the uh vinyl manufacturing plants yes yes we both were um we didn't we, we, I don't think we came, we had any preconceived notions of who would be running the pressing machines at, at record pressing plants. But I think Chris and I were both surprised that it was, was primarily women and therefore primarily women responsible for assuring that a, a record in, in perfect condition makes its way via your favorite record store to you. Yeah. It, it was very much a Rosie, the Riveter kind of vibe. I was really, uh, 
surprised and pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah, we were too. We, we thought that was pretty, that was pretty, pretty badass. Um, so having made the documentary, having, you know, gone to the, uh, the convention in Austin, uh, you know, kind of seeing the full spectrum, what are your predictions for the vinyl industry? You know, what, what do you see down the line? And, you know, related to that question, are there other physical forms of media that you see experiencing a similar resurgence? I don't know. Um, I don't think vinyl, just because it's sort of economically impossible, I don't think vinyl can continue at a 10 to 15% growth rate forever. I'm not sure there's an industry that can. Um, but it's not, it's not going away again. We're never going to have a moment where, you know, vinyl disappears and something else takes its place. Like that's, other than perhaps embedding an NFT into your, into the flat black plastic disc that is your record. I I don't think we're going to have another format change in the way we listen to music. I think we've kind of reached the end of the rainbow when it, when it comes to that. Um, as far as other physical mediums, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm one of those kind of people that, like, like thinks that the Criterion DVD flash sale that happens twice a year is, like, the most wonderful time of year. Uh, Us too. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think I'm just that way because I think if you are a seeker with movies, the same way that many people are seekers with music, like, you just... You, you just don't want to leave it to chance that something, you know, I hope will be on a streaming service that I either subscribe to or not. And, and maybe it will be there when I get around to clearing it out of my queue on that streaming service or not. Um, I, 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 I certainly, you know, I, I certainly am a, am a big believer in, uh, in checking, checking out movies from the public library and, if you are so inclined, ripping them to a, a hard drive and watching them later, I don't have any issue with that. Um, but uh, but I also think like like there is something to be said for, particularly in the case of film, this happens far less with music. Um, things just don't make it from generation to generation. And, and I'm not talking about like like weird arty films that like that like, oh well, you know, like like there's five hundred fans and 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 we can't, you know, we can't spend, you know, we can't spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh catering to them. I mean, Chariots of Fire is not available on a streaming service right now. Um, Chariots of Fire is a best picture winner and contains possibly the most recognizable theme in music history, in film history, excuse me. And the composer of that theme just died. So like, like, come on, like, like, like Chariots of Fire should be available on a streaming service at least every two years when the Olympics rolls around, if nothing else. Um, um, Probably, you know, when the Boston Marathon or the New York City Marathon is on television, like, um, so those are the kind of things that make it very easy to miss out on whole chunks of cinematic history if we rely on streaming services to to do all the work for us. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's a that's a majority opinion. But I could see like great DVDs becoming the equivalent of like a oh a, you know like a hundred and eighty gram mobile fidelity record or something like that. I could see criterion being like the standard for, for, um, people who are, are 
are cinemaphiles and, and really want to own movies as opposed to just piping them in. Well, my fear with this whole digital age, and Sean and I are both gamers, but mm -hmm. the more you go to this digital age, once it's gone, it's gone if you don't have a physical copy. And that mm -hmm. sort of becomes my fear when you talk about film and music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I'm not going to say we should all spend our time pirating stuff, though. I, I also feel like if you want to cancel, if you want to, if you want to make something unavailable that there is clearly a demand for you as the owner of that intellectual property, you, you've got whatever's coming to you as far as, as far as pirating goes, as far as I'm concerned. Um, oh, yeah. Um, gaming gaming is, is, a, is a very interesting case because like as someone who grew up like on the early on early console games and, and is a hundred percent a child of like the infocom revolution um i i i i am i am pleased that that like abandonware is a is a is a is a a decent sized element of of internet culture um it's not super difficult to play Congo Bongo online. Um, I don't know how much of the history of gaming that that weird sort of you know reclamation includes. I, I'm guessing because you brought it up, you found whole eras of gaming history that are just lost in the sands of time. Yeah, I was sort of shocked at like games that I grew up playing, like on on a Game Boy. I mean, if you don't have an, an old Game Boy, if you don't have that cartridge, you, you can't play it. Yeah, I, I know the Internet Archive has that thing where you can play old games, but I don't know what platforms and, and how old or how young. Like, I, I've been relatively satisfied with, with, with what the Internet Archive uh, has, but, but it's a very different experience. Like, like, like I, you know, I, I'm in the middle of playing. Castlevania, like like first the first <laughs> Castlevania on like on like a NES emulator, which is super fun, but yeah. like it's not quite the same thing as playing it with the sort of rectangular NES controller. I suppose I could get one of those for my laptop if I wanted to. <laughs> of um, I think that's going to become increasingly so as you as you sort of as history kind of marches forward and you you want to play a game that you know the, uh, that's that was an original xbox game for example where where the intended controller has nine buttons and two joysticks like that's a, that's a hard thing to emulate on on a keyboard and right um and i don't know if if someone i mean I have a I have a pretty good universal controller I use on my TV to play to play stuff from like Apple Arcade and things like that. But like, I think increasingly, like yeah, we're gonna get to this this you know three pronged fork in the road where um, where people's you know favorite games will be stuff that was either released for Xbox or PlayStation or Nintendo. Um, all with different controllers and it's like okay like like yeah the person who invents the like the rosetta stone where you can play those all <laughs> like is gonna is gonna win the nobel prize i mean, I mean <laughs> um, um so I, I i think these things exist but there's definitely like there's definitely a lot of compromises one has to make and, and it's very it's very difficult to like to find legal means of of playing these if that's important to you right um, you mentioned seeking um, earlier, and it's 
funny because it's one of the things that that Chelsea and I have discussed about vinyl is the hunt, the hunt for the record, the one that you're looking for. And uh, I'm not as much of a stickler about it as Chelsea is. Chelsea wants to find it in the wild. Mm. I can't, you know, I, I will order it online if I can find what I'm looking for. She wants to be the one that gets the thrill of the victory uh, of finding it, you know, in the wild. What would be your white whale? You know, what, what's, what's your Moby Dick? What, what is the, the, the record that you've had to hunt for that you've found that you were just a huge celebratory moment for you? I don't, I don't think I have one because at any point, like I, 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 I sort of, I sort of, shop for records the same way I, I like watch movies on streaming services that I keep cues. And I do that because I forget things. So I have to have a list of like what I'm hunting for, which means at any one time there's 30 to 50 records I'm hunting for. And, and I have a feeling that will never change like, like that. It will be somewhere around that number until, until I'm dead and buried and the records are, you know, carted off and my wife gives them to our <laughs> nephews or something. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, but I, I, I am a believer in the hunt because I believe a huge part of the fun of records is going to record stores and record conventions and other place records are and being around people who are into the same thing you're into. Um, at the same time, I, I don't want records, at least in my own life, to assume the position that like rare books assume, which is, you know, there is there's definitely a person, a rare book collector personality where the joy is to spend ten years looking for something, and then once you've bought it, you kind of once you found it, you kind of mount it on your wall like it's an arm like it's an antelope head, and and it just <laughs> sits there, and 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 you never read it, and you never do anything with it. Like that doesn't interest me. I, I think maybe if I Maybe if I, I lived in a ginormous house and I had rooms to fill, like hoarding things would be more interesting to me, but I don't. Um, so everything I I hunt for and buy record-wise is something I'm going to listen to, um, which means my hunting is almost never about like rare pressings and, and records that are old and fragile and have to be carefully kept. I, I'm, I'm more of the the... What do they what do they say in the Velveteen Rabbit? You know, like the toys that become real are the ones that you play with and you love, and the you know the stuffing runs out of them and the color rubs off their noses and stuff like that. Like, um, I uh, so I, I think I do hunt, but I hunt for stuff that I hunt for stuff that I I know I'm going to uh, play rather than simply keep. Oh, of course. And it's, that rings so true with records. If you're not going to play it, then there's there's no point in having it. If you're not going to interact with it, then then why bring it into your house? Yeah. And, and I but I think I, I should add, like what you said about, like, believe me, the temptation to just like get a passing fancy for a record and be like to discogs, it'll be here in two days, like is very real. Like like that's a that is a temptation that I fight several times a week. Um and my my wife, who's smarter than me in a lot of respects, always says, like, you have to have a reason to go to the record store. Uh, and if you're just going to sit there and press order, order, order on Discogs every time you're, you're curious about something, well, then you have no reason to go to the record store. And, like, being a record person is pointless if you don't want to spend time in a record store, as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. Mm -hmm. 
So how big is your vinyl collection at this current moment? Uh, mine is about 650, 700 records. Um, and I, I go through them uh, every few months and just make sure that everything in there is something that I indeed listen to and enjoy and isn't just, you know, squatting and taking up space. Because <laughs> right. if it is, it doesn't belong there. Uh, I, I, I would love to be the kind of person that, that could just keep things forever because they have sentimental value or may have sentimental value someday. Uh, I, I live in a very expensive place and and and. I, for what we all pay for square footage around here, I simply do not have that luxury. That's fair. Those are tough choices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I frankly wish we had gotten to it in Vinyl Nation. I, I wish we had been able to talk about sort of, you know, the inherent classist aspects of records, like records being 12 by 12 and heavy and and fragile and made of plastic like inherently privileged people who have lots of space to put them in um and and that's that's too bad you know i think we did a decent job in the movie showing people who like live in college dorm rooms and have turntables and have space for like a dozen records and a milk crate under their bed um but I think we also tried very hard not to have too many people who had like whole wings of their house devoted to record collections sure. because sure. we just didn't see how that was going to speak to, you know, the average person who was either interested or maybe interested in vinyl. Yeah, I think you run the risk of antagonizing people at that oh, point. Oh, no, for me, it's aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you say we talk about some movies then? Absolutely. I know, Kevin, you said that you wanted to talk about some the four facets that you see as far as how record stores uh, played themselves out in films. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. When you guys sent me a, a sort of preliminary list of record store movies, uh, there were many that I hadn't considered, which was great. Um, and then I added a few of my own to it and I tried to sort of sort them into categories because that's just the way I think. Um, and I think record store movies, although I'm positive there are some exceptions, record store movies fit into one of four categories with considerable overlap. But the four categories, as I see it, record store movies fitting into are, one, the office movie, which is where the record store is a workplace and the movie is about characters who work together. Uh, so that's your uh, – do you want me to name the movies that may fit into this category? Is that going to spoil what we're going to talk about later on? No, you can totally Go name them. Go for it. Okay, so that's your, that's your high fidelities and your empire records. They kind of fit into that first category. Sure. Uh, your second category is, is the record store as matchmaker movie. Uh, and these are movies that are almost always romantic comedies where the record store serves as a place where the two main characters realize they are falling for each other. Um, and this is the this is your Before Sunrises and your 500 Days of Summer, and I'm sure there are others. Um, three is the Pivot Point movie, which is the record store as the place where key scenes happen, even if it is not what the movie is about. It's the place where important plot points in the movie happens, and it's a place where the movie switches direction. Uh, the two best examples here are Chasing Amy and House Party 2, both movies <laughs> where key plot points happen at record stores. Um, 
And then finally is the is the record store documentary. Uh, Vinyl Nation fits under here, but also one of the movies that inspired Vinyl Nation, Last Record Shop Standing, uh, which is about British record stores. Of course, the great Tower Records documentary, All Things Must Pass, like the nonfiction um, movie about music and music culture that invariably will include record stores. That's fantastic. I think you've you've definitely hit all the points in terms of how record stores kind of introduce themselves uh, in film. And uh, I'm going to lead off with, with the one that you mentioned right out of the, right out of the gate. And that of course is high fidelity. Um, this is a movie that I saw when it first came out uh, early two thousands, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched it this past week uh, just as a refresher. And I was really blown away by the cast. This is one of those films where, if you tried to recast these people today, you probably couldn't bankroll them. Uh, you know, John Cusack, Jack Black, Lisa Bonet, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Tim Robbins in a ridiculous role. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just some, some wonderful folks. All the relatives of the Cusacks are in this film. Oh, <laughs> sure, several not, Cusacks. Not, yes, a lot of them. Look at their look at the credits. It's really crazy. They they put everyone in there, and so much so, you know, Lisa Bonet uh, plays the one of the love interest, the many love interests in this film. Uh, mm-hmm. It's only fitting that Zoe Kravitz played the character Robin, aka Rob, in the TV series reboot right. of this. Right. Uh, so kind of keep it in the family there. I, I'm asking this to both of you. Uh, you know, Jack Black is a is a uh, cantankerous character in this movie. Uh, very polarizing, very uh, aggressive in his passion, therefore repellent a lot of the time. Have you ever met a record store clerk? anywhere close to Jack Black's uh, character that, that the elitism that he brings to the table. Uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. Oh, I could see that. Certainly. Um, thank God it wasn't me because I probably would have yelled and sweared, but there was like these two younger girls just browsing around and they picked up the aforementioned Taylor Swift and the clerk was just ruthless. Like, it was insane. And I was like, I need to leave now. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't think I've ever encountered anyone quite like that. I've, I have in other industries, uh, but in terms of record collecting, for the most part, people who work in record stores are pretty encouraging and very much offering, you know, uh, you know, open arms kind of approach. And, and Jack Black's character, uh, just, if you don't like what I think you should like, you, you're awful and you should get out of the store. I mean, to be fair, this guy was probably, I don't know, 75 and just like old and grumpy and like not having it. If you weren't into what he was into, like, don't speak to me. We're done. Yeah, I think like, I, I don't know if, if I, I couldn't tell you if we, we sort of made this point clearly enough in Vinyl Nation, but our, our contention was that the Jack Black character in High Fidelity is now safely an anachronism. Um, it, is a, it is a product of the pre-vinyl comeback when being into records was kind of a, a, a priesthood. And, 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 you know, like, like, like I'm mixing metaphors now, but like converting to Judaism, like you had to ask three times and they had to say no three times before you could like actually be let in. You know, that, that was a, that was a product of when records were a rare and weird thing and they're not a rare and weird thing anymore. Um, So I think the, the 
thank God, the, the comeback of records has also meant that record stores on the whole have become much friendlier places. Agreed. Um, yeah. I, I, I did have an experience in the 90s when I was in graduate school in Austin, Texas, and I went to Waterloo Records to ask for a CD for a song I had heard on the radio. And the guy who was about the same age as me just sort of looked at me and says, I don't know what that is. And I said, who would know what it is? And he goes, someone here. And he sort of made no effort to. And, and finally, I was just fed up. And I said, what do you listen to? And he goes, you know, underground music. And Waterloo at the time, it, it, it's now catty corner from Waterloo, but Waterloo at the time was across the street from the, from the original Whole Foods, which is based in Austin. And I remembered like feeling like saying that was like someone walking into Whole Foods and saying, where's the milk? And someone being like, I don't do milk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I, I have no idea what happened to that gentleman. I, I, I know most <laughs> people who lived in Austin for a certain period of time have probably had that experience at Waterloo. Uh, Waterloo was kind of the only game in town when I was in graduate school there in the late 90s. That's not true anymore. Like Austin has become a much more diversified and robust record town. Um, and, uh, and so far as I know, um, Waterloo has become a much more pleasant place. Well, like you said, hopefully the Jack Black uh, archetype is a fossil at this point. Um, yeah, and he lives in Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's like it's important to remember that like when the novel that High Fidelity is written about is written about North London. It's not written it's not about Chicago where this movie takes place. And the neighborhood that they used for where championship vinyl was was Wicker Park, which was the center of the sort of alternative rock Chicago music scene at this time uh, of blessed memory. Uh, it is also the music scene that Liz Fair wrote her debut album Exile and Guyville about, like the sort of pretentious, misogynistic, preening, you know, a bunch of white guys, like, 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 you know, barring the door. Um, and so I, those two things are often not put in the same sentence, but, but high fidelity's location being switched to Chicago being filmed in Wicker Park, um, where, and really they could have filmed it anywhere was, 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 I'm assuming, even though the director was British, I'm assuming was a very conscious choice and was very much a statement of the, of the insufferability of that community that, that, Miss that Miss Miss Fair would would write her her now classic debut album about Chelsea. What do you want to talk about? Oh, uh, duh! Empire Records. Empire Records. Go for it. I remember seeing this movie. God, I was like eleven, mm -hmm. maybe when my mom put this on, and I was like, "What is this? Why are we watching this?" And then I just it, like I found the whole Rex Manning thing really hysterical at the time. And yeah. sort of latched onto that and sort of mm -hmm. didn't realize because I never really had a pause from records. They were always ever present in my life. Mm -hmm. Just that's just how I grew up. And um, I sort of didn't realize like how cool these kids were. And as I got older, I was like, oh, maybe I'm a cool kid. And that movie just sort of spoke <laughs> to me in a different way. I was like, oh, I'm different. <laughs> Obviously, we both occupy that office space um, use of the record store. Kevin, talk about uh, one of these other ones that you that, that you mentioned, uh, like the pivot point or the matchmaker. What what's a good uh, 
what, what's one of your favorite examples? I mean, Before Sunrise is a very important movie to me, and and I I, I happen to be exactly the right age when that movie came out, so I take that for what it's worth. Like I I I was I was the same age as those characters when that movie came out. Um, I am always impressed with movies that are effectively what, you know, like theater directors call two-handers, where it's just two people doing something um, that manage to be compelling for 90 to 120 minutes. Like, like, like if you go to the theater, you kind of expect that because that's a an established way of making theater. Like movies, you kind of, because they're cinema, you kind of expect them to be bigger and grander than that. And, and it, so it's always impressive to me when you can do a movie that's effectively two characters and make it that compelling. And one of the great scenes in Before Sunrise is, is without dialogue, it's the two characters in a listening booth in Vienna listening to a record and realizing they're falling for each other. And it's done entirely on their faces. Um, and it's remarkable. It, it's one of many remarkable scenes in that movie. And, you know, I, I, I'm not saying these two movies are connected other than both being in record stores. But, you know, Hearts Beat Loud, which was a, which was a great movie that, that you guys included, is a movie that's okay. effectively about two characters. Yeah. And um, and manages to be compelling the whole time. Like 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 it's there's something just magical about that. Like you can't rely on any fancy tricks. It all has to be done in the writing and the performances, and also just how you capture this on film the space that these characters occupy. Um, record stores. We've said this a bunch in interviews for Vinyl Nation. Record stores are not easy places to film because inherently on film they just look like rows of squares i mean they're not it's not like a factory it's not it it doesn't move it doesn't have an inherent cinematic quality to it you kind of have to bring it yourself you have to do something to make it interesting so a record store that looks great on film is evidence of considerable filmmaking talent on the part of the people who made that movie i agree uh you know, in prep for the episode, I threw out a few social media posts. Um, and one of the ones I was using was Pretty in Pink, and it was just a still from the record store. And I was looking closely at the uh, cash register area and all the little stickers and little flyers and things that they included in the set dressing that really spoke to what that movie was about, hitting that uh, that 80s new age music, you know, kind of counterculture hitting those bands that, you know, that you're just too cool for school, you know, and making sure that the right things were in that shot versus like you said, rows and rows of boxes and squares. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the record store is far and away the most interesting set piece in pretty and pink, no question about it. And, and, that's probably because it was based on an actual record store in Chicago that John Hughes used to shop at called, called, wax tracks which no longer exists sadly uh it was filmed in a studio like that like that was a set but um but it it's it looks like some place you could shop at right it looks like if you lived in maybe like a cool college town it would be right next to the head shop or the you know the vintage clothing store and and um and you know with maybe like a, a an unpaved parking lot behind it or something like that and um yeah it's 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 an amazing set piece and it's, I, I don't know which of the four categories I established that movie belongs in, but <laughs> um, maybe the, maybe the, the, the pivot point because that, because all, all many of the important scenes of that movie take place in that record store. 
It's funny you should mention wax tracks. Um, you, that, that's a great documentary, Industrial Accident, the story of wax tracks records. Yeah, it is. Yes. I, I, I can't say I've seen it myself, but it's it's been recommended to me dozens of times by people. So that, that that's that's my shortcoming. Ghost World is one that doesn't actually, as I recall, take place in a record store at really any point, but it does cover the record collecting and uh, the hunt as well as meeting odd characters who are selling records. That's a really interesting one because you've got some attitude and <laughs> as well as some quirky characters. Um, have you seen, uh, have you seen good vibrations? Mm -mm. That, that's one that I picked up on just recently. It's the story of Terry Hooley who opened a record store in Belfast in the eighties and was basically the godfather of the punk rock movement in Belfast. And it stars uh, Richard Dormer, who with audiences would know him from Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. I, I recommend this. It's a really cool movie. Um, one that I had never heard of before. It's uh, just a few years old. Uh, I say a few. Listen to me. Probably about <laughs> 10 years old. But uh, really cool. Uh, very much in that, that punk vein of just fly by the seat of your pants. And literally he did. He was not making enough money to pay the rent. Not enough money to pay for the store but he was hell bent on producing these punk rock records for these up and coming artists. And he did it all from his little record shop. Yeah. I, I, I will, I will see any movie. This is by the way, this is just not me being a weirdo, but like I will see any movie that takes place during the troubles in Ireland. That's just a thing for me. Like, um, and it doesn't matter what it's about. Like, like I remember when, when Belfast came out and it was like, oh, it's about Ken Branagh's childhood in Belfast during the Troubles. I was like, say no more. I'm there. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> it doesn't matter that it's about horrible things, which movies about the Troubles always are. Um, the, uh, that's just a category of movies that I will always come around to. So this is, this, this sounds perfect for me. And by the way, everybody has has a category like that, and it's not a genre. It's not like romance. It's not like rom com or action or something like that. Everybody has a category like I will always see movies that take place in Kentucky. Like someone's got that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know it's not movies, but are like, have you seen the TV series called Dead Wax? Mm -mm. No, I have not. All right. So this is this is a a, a horror TV show about records is that oh, on wow. shutter yes it's a shutter original oh, wow. okay it's really really interesting yeah i i you know i i'm not a horror person but i would probably see this and i think it's just evidence that like records are one of these things that like we think of them as kind of ah well sort of tangible physical, easy to figure out objects, you know, it's one of those words where you say, oh, a record album and people are like, yeah, sure. I know what that is. There's not a lot of mystery to it. Um, but a record can take you in so many different places, in so many different directions. We, we get, a, here's a, here's a horror series based on records, as you've pointed out. Um, we, Chris and I have been recommended some Netflix documentary called Bathtubs Over Broadway about 9,000 times. Um, is it about records? A little bit. It's mostly about um, industrial musicals of the 50s and 60s when, you know, it, at, this, at this high point of the American corporation, companies like General Electric and RCA would commission people to, to create musicals about their company. 
Um, so it's just about this weird, freaky aspect of corporate culture, which is fascinating, but is only a little bit about records. And yet, you know, based on that very narrow thread, people people have said, well, you made a movie about records. They kind of made a movie about records. Uh, you guys should hang out. It was like a bad premise for a first date, but like, <laughs> um, um, but, uh, but yeah, like, like that's how many, I just think it's evidence of how many different directions records can take you in and how sort of endless, endlessly, in, endlessly inspiring for creativity they are. Yeah. Have we left any out? Are there any on the cutting room floor? I mean, I'm sure there's tons. Kevin, are we overlooking anything? Is there like a great record store movie? Like, I mean, someone should edit these together on YouTube if they haven't. I I mean, the, 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 in a movie with many good scenes, the record store scene in Chasing Amy is like, Oh, that's so good. It's probably, it's, it's one of the best scenes Kevin Smith has ever written. And and, I agree. yeah, and, and entirely to the you know, and and much to the credit of of the great Dwight Ewell, who should have way more work than he has as an actor, uh, you know, being in you know, carrying that scene like triumphantly above his shoulders. Um, I mean, there's uh, there's many many you know, like like I one of the things I find fascinating as a person in his forties is how sort of effortlessly records make their way into movies about people in their teens and twenties. Um, if you've seen the, the, the pretty damn good rom-com love Simon, which came out a couple of years ago. Yes. Yep. I mean, these are just teenagers. These are teenagers like living today. And at the very beginning, Simon, who's the main character and narrates the movie, says, you know, I love my friends. This is what we do. We drink too much iced coffee. We watch bad 90s movies. And I'm like, man, if you're 16, bad 90s movies is a category now. It's a category like film noir is a category. Like <laughs> that, that's how far removed from that movie I felt. And yet, you know, like all of the points of like, like, like heart fulfillment and heartache in that movie are punctuated by Simon and his friends putting on a record. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are 16 year olds, you know, these are, these are people who have, who have grown up in an era where music is entirely a, 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 a product of digital technology. Like, um, and yet, there are records fit as seamlessly into their lives as like, as like, you know, like, like a, a, a lamp on the night table by their bed does. I gotta know, uh, what's, what, uh, what kind of record player do you have? What are you using currently? I have a, uh, back when I first acquired, uh, a, 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 a stereo system, I, I lived in a building with very rickety floors and, and that was pretty clear after I got the first record and it, it would, after I got my, this record player and it would skip every time I walked by it. Um, so I said, this is not going to work. And after coming up, you know, searching far and wide for a solution, I ended up spending a bit too much money on a professional DJ's turntable, oh. uh, which I still have. It has basically shock absorbers in it the way like a car has shock absorbers in it. Oh, um, wow. And uh, which means you can stand next to it and jump up and down and the record won't skip. Um, so I have, I have an Audio Technica DJ's turntable from about 10 years ago that plays great. Um, and a pair of, 
a pair of speaker uh, ADS speakers from about 1987 that were also part of that initial stereo system I acquired. And then the only part of the turntable that's new is is the amplifier, which sort of gave up the ghost about four years ago. Um, and I, I was sold a, a very nice amplifier by a guy who later moved back to his hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, opened his own stereo shop, and is in our movie. Oh, that's um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Livengood, owner of Ember Audio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, used to sell high-end audio equipment in San Francisco, where I live, um, and sold me my amplifier, and that's how I got to know him. And then when he moved back to Winston-Salem, we're like, Chris is very smart, has really good things to say about how audio equipment and records work. And he ended up being one of the, one of the characters in our movie. Yeah. He, uh, he was definitely on a different plane than a lot of people in mm-hmm. my opinion, including you know, us. Could, yeah. 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 You could tell that he was coming at it from a completely different angle. And when I saw Winston-Salem pop up on the credit, I was like, wow, what an interesting place for him to be. Um, I know Winston-Salem fairly well, so it, I was just shocked. Uh, but uh, he, you could tell this guy knew his stuff. He came at it from a almost esoteric kind of way, you know, and uh, just another one of the fascinating people in the documentary. Yeah, he, he had a combination of life experience that made him a great person to be in our movie. Someone who'd grown up as like a, a teenage punk, which which is pretty common in a place like that, that was then, uh, a place like Winston-Salem, which was then a dying industrial town, isn't anymore, but was then. Um, and, you know, but had sort of made his mark professionally selling, you know, $200,000 audio equipment to people who can afford $200,000 audio equipment. Um, and so he had this really interesting combination of a life story and life skills um, that I think gave him a perspective on, on, you know, on the comeback of records and, 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 and from the point of view of someone who sells the equipment for this um, that, I think I don't. I'm not sure we could have found anywhere else. He was almost an outlier because he came at it from such a a lofty place. And I'm not saying that he's snooty or stuffy, but he came at it from a very different perspective. As like by contrast, the as you mentioned, you know, the dorm room girl with the little cross sleeve record player with the yeah. box of records under her bed. Again, folks, check out this documentary. It does a great job. It canvases that huge spectrum, and it's. And I said it in my review and I, and it holds true. This movie has such a good vibe about it. It's, you know, a lot of times documentaries can get so bogged down with minutia or uh, the, the harsh reality of whatever it's dealing with. And well, your documentary does documentary does speak to that to a great degree uh, in terms of the troubles that vinyl has had um, for me, at least um, it was a feel good, which was so refreshing from a documentary's point of view. So, you know, personally, I want to thank, thank you and, uh, and Chris for, for putting out something so positive. Well, I think it came at the right time too, because that, that theme of community and being welcoming and after going through the, the hell of 2020 and 2021, um, that was really nice. It felt like, yeah, these guys are my friends. We could hang out. <laughs> I, pr- I really appreciate you both saying that. It, it's it's what we, 
it's what we always wanted from this movie, which became very clear after we completed it in February of 2020 and quickly realized that the world was going to hell and there wasn't a time that we were going to be able to show it to people anytime soon. Um, but uh, we wanted people to get that feeling from it that they had just met 45 new friends watching our movie. Um, I think if we had had a miserable time making it, it would have been much harder for us to have such a positive vibe around the finished film. Uh, I don't think, I mean, Chris is a more experienced filmmaker than I am, but I don't think either one of us are experienced enough to, to, to hide it if we had had a miserable time making this movie. We had, we had a joyous time making this movie. And that very much comes across. Yeah, that definitely comes through loud and clear. Kevin, I think that, uh, our time's almost up. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to thank you so much for reaching out to us and, and agreeing to be on the show. Uh, it's been a thrill for, for both of us. Uh, same. I, I, I appreciate you guys, you guys asking and it's, 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 uh, it's been just been really fun to talk to you both. Is there anything that you want to plug? Tell us about what you're working on now. What's next for you? Uh, uh, Vital Nation is is out and available at vitalnationfilm.com. We talked about that at the beginning. Uh, Chris and I are already in conversation about what our next film is going to be. Um, we we had we had a a great time working together and would like to do it again. Um, I am also under contract for a book uh, with with Oxford University Press. Uh, a collection of long-form career retrospective interviews uh, with women film directors. Um, And I will need to turn that in in the next year and a half or so, and hopefully that will be out 2024 or 2025. Fantastic. I'll be uh, first in line. (laughs) Not if I'm first. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. That's very nice of you. All right, folks, the, uh, the documentary is Vinyl Nation. Check it out. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, it's got our seal of approval for what that's worth. But I think that just listening to Kevin and, and his enthusiasm for vinyl should speak volumes about what to expect. That's going to wrap it up for us, Cinema Chop Shop. We're always out there on social media, uh, Cinema Chop Shop on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, cinemachopshop at gmail.com, where we always check our emails. No, we don't. We don't. We just want to thank everybody for listening, and uh, we'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode, maybe. But uh, again, this was an unexpected surprise, and we're very, very happy that uh, it worked itself out. That's going to be it for us. Thanks a lot, and uh, keep listening. Bye.